Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for downloading and listening to The Next Track. This is episode number 24. Our guest this episode is composer Timo Andres. And I want to warn you right now, this is the first part of a two-part discussion, and we'll have part two in our next episode. Meanwhile, Timo, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Great to be here. Timo, we're music fans, and, and the people who listen to this show are music fans. And, and music for us, in some ways, we're all used to the garage band that gets together and you know plays three chords and eventually scores a record. And we know all the stories about Beethoven and Schubert and the Garretts with the candles, but we know much less about contemporary music and how it all works. So we wanted to have you here to explain to us, what is it like today to be a composer? Well, you know, it's um, it, in some ways it's very different from our ideas of the 19th century composer. And in some ways it's actually exactly the same. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of funny um, to read composer biographies uh, for me. And um, actually the things that I'm really interested in are like the details of professional life. Like how did, how exactly did Schumann afford to feed his like eight kids or, or whatever? Like, you know, how was Beethoven uh, going around getting commissions? Um, because these are the things that I worry about on a daily basis. Because you have the same concerns, you're just a couple of centuries later. Correct, and I don't have eight kids. Um, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> not yet. Give it time, give it time. If you want to be like Bach, you have to be productive. <laughs> <laughs> I should have started a decade ago. Um, but, it, you know, Beethoven was, I guess, uh, he's considered the first composer who really made his living as a freelance composer. So, meaning he didn't have an appointment. He, he was not a Kapellmeister. He didn't have a position at a court. He didn't have a prince paying his bills, basically. Well, he had a lot of princes paying separate bills. Right, but he didn't have, he didn't have the one patron like Haydn who took him to this big castle and said, write all this music. Exactly, exactly. And so in a way, what we're doing these days is very similar. I mean, I guess you now instead of the church, you have uh, academia. That that would kind of be the default career path for a composer. Is is you try to get a teaching appointment, and uh, that sort of gives you the stability to, you know, pursue other projects as you like. Um, I never really saw myself going that route. Um, for one thing, I, I actually love being freelance. I, I love being sort of the, the ultimate authority on my own career. I love not dealing with uh, that kind of bureaucracy um, because a, a, a teaching appointment does come with a lot of sort of grunt work. Such as teaching students? Well, no, I mean, the, te <laughs> the, teaching, the teaching itself... It turns out that the teaching itself is uh, is kind of the tip of the iceberg. And my friends who do teach, they love the teaching. You know, they, they love their students. Um, it's all the other stuff that <laughs> there's a heaping portion of on the side. So I'm, I'm 
perfectly happy to leave that to people who really want to be doing it because it's also a very competitive job market. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm making my living, uh, probably two thirds as a composer just by commissions and sort of associated, uh, royalties and publishing and, uh, and then the rest as a performer. When did you decide that you wanted to be a composer? It was sort of a gradual realization. I mean, I always knew that I wanted to be a musician, um, pretty much since I first sat down at a keyboard, which was when I was seven. And I, I, so I started piano lessons very soon after that. And I also was writing down music from really the very beginning. I mean, uh, I can remember even I like I didn't know that music paper existed, so I would just like draw score lines on on loose leaf and write stuff down. And for some reason, I've always felt a compulsion to do that. It's a, it's a very mysterious thing to me because, of course, m most of the music being made today is not written down. It's it's not notated in that in that way. It probably 99% of it is, is not written down. Do you mean like uh, like pop music that's usually written and recorded and produced in a studio? Or? I mean, all basically all music. The the system of Western notation, it's it's, it's very much a niche these days. And it, it's, you know, for most music, it's just, it's, it's not necessary. Um, but it turns out that it works, still works very well for this idea of having the one person who comes up with the music and then other people who execute it. Um, and so that's always sort of the system that I've been fascinated with and uh, the sort of kind of uh, friction that you get between the idea of a composer, which is translated in, the, in this very specific, but also very, very vague language to another person who interprets it and that that person is kind of as important an artist as the author. That's, I think, the core of the thing that I love about quote-unquote classical music, about this this world that I work in. And it, what's really mysterious to me is it's like, that is what fascinated me when I was seven, when I was writing lines down on, on printer paper. Do, do you mean what fascinated you was that you could write something down that someone else could then reproduce? Yeah, and that it, I could sort of capture sound or the idea of a sound in this this very graphical way because um, I've, I've always before I um, before I, I got into music I wanted to be a visual artist uh, I guess I, <laughs> I guess I always had um, a career plan but yeah but when I was a kid I, I wanted to be a painter and I, I still am really obsessed with like uh, the design of things and, and how my scores look and how my website looks. And it, to me, it's sort of all, uh, it all rotates around the same aesthetic core in a way. You, you said you, you used the word classical music before and you did the little air quotes around classical. 
so far you have two albums that were released on none such records shy and mighty which is an album of music for two pianos which certainly doesn't sound classical and home stretch which has your version of a mozart piano concerto your own piano concerto and a piece where you riff on some songs by brian eno that's not truly classical music. Now, we, we had Alex Ross of The New Yorker on some weeks ago, and we asked what classical music was. And obviously, it's very hard to come to a definition. But you did well, use... Well, he's the expert. <laughs> well, he he knows a lot more than any of us, but you're the one making the music, and yet you still call it classical. Why did you actually use that term? Because I was thinking before the show, well, what are we going to say of the music he writes? What genre is your music? Well, I mean, I, I use the term classical in air quotes because it's sort of useful shorthand for the arrangement that I was talking about of having a composer and a notated score and performers who mostly play acoustic instruments. Um, th that is sort of the, the world that I'm referring to. And of course, we do a lot more besides capital C, classical. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to come up with a, a, a name or a definition that encompasses everything we do. Um, on the other hand, I feel very strongly that that's not really my job to come up with that name. Um, I don't like, to, I don't really like uh, to think in terms of, well, basically by the, by the time you put a label on anything, it's, it sort of becomes marketing. And then if you, if you try to work backwards and like write the music for that marketing term, then it, it just sounds like marketing. I think it works that way for listeners, too. I don't like labels and genres um, because I like a lot of different sounding things. Right. So my personal generalized theory of music appreciation can be boiled down to human beings make noises with their mouths and their hands and their feet and uh, occasionally use devices to augment those noises. And some of those noises I like. I think that's about as specific as you should ever get. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I imagine that as a composer, you want to be able to create your noises in the way that you think listeners will find pleasant and appealing without being boxed in by a genre. Well, yes, and and uh, and that being pleasant is is not everyone's end goal. No, quite the contrary. In fact, some people write music in order to not be pleasant. We won't mention names about all of the serialists and, <laughs> you know, people with those odd ideas. And, and personally, I've never understood why someone wants to listen to some of those Scandinavian symphonies that just sound like the soundtrack to a horror movie. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, sometimes I, I reminded of, uh, do, do you know this piece, the most unwanted music? No, I'll have to send it to you. It's, it's, um, basically they did a survey of what people like and don't like in the music that they listen to just a, you know, random sampling. And so, and then using those results, the composer, Dave soldier came up with two pieces, one, which is, the things that people most want in their music. And then the masterpiece is this sprawling, like 25 minute track called The Most Unwanted Music that encompasses everything that people said they didn't want to listen to. Um, and it's, it's like, it's actually a, a wonderful, it's kind of a wonderful piece. Like it's one of these things, like once you start listening, you have to listen to all 25 minutes. But I'm often reminded of that in new music concerts that I go to. It's like, okay, this person is really, 
you know, they have very specific tastes and uh, they're going to lay it on me for 15 minutes or whatever. And, and uh, I'm going to try and put myself in the place of someone who really goes for that. I think, and I think it's a, a very useful mental exercise, even if, you know, what, what I want to put on on a daily basis is not necessarily, you know, quarter tone vibraphones and, and screaming. Um, I remember uh, around the time when I was maybe a freshman in college, I made a, a very distinct resolution for myself to always be open-minded about new stuff that I heard um, to, to sort of, as one would try to be with a, a, a new acquaintance, um, you know, give it the benefit of the doubt. I, I grew up very sort of narrowly focused on classical music, I, studying piano and, and studying at Juilliard and, and uh, just sort of discovering the classical canon that was what I was fascinated with, and I didn't have time really for anything else. And as a result, I was I was not an omnivorous listener up to the point when I was, uh, you know, eighteen or nineteen. Um, and then when I moved away from home and and you know was thrown in this this sort of uh, very diverse kind of uh, environment of musical taste. Uh, that was the Yale undergrad population at the time. I, I kind of didn't know where I fit in. It, I had a little bit of a hard time for a while. And I sort of had to teach myself to listen to music more objectively, I guess. Now, on the other hand, I, I do feel that composers maybe should not be the most omnivorous listeners that after you sort of go through this period of discovery, which most of the time will happen when you're, when you're young, you kind of end up focusing on this uh, handful of things that you really love. And um, if, you're going to, if you're going to pursue this, this kind of weird uh, career path of trying to sort of hone your voice, try, trying to find the music that is the most you, it can often be more confusing if you're, if you're listening to, you know, all the music that's out there, uh, you know, trying to keep up with everything that's new or, you know, there are people whose job this is uh, to sort of... To listen to everything. Yeah, to, to listen to everything and to be open-minded. Those people, I mean, the people who should be doing that are the gatekeepers, you know, and I, I use that to mean not only music critics and, and journalists, but, you know, arts administrators, people who run institutions and people who program for orchestras and people who run music festivals. And, you know, if those people aren't listening widely, then it's extremely destructive to the whole field. Compo composers, need to, we need to focus on the other hand, isn't there a risk if you don't listen too widely that your music becomes a bit derivative, that you've been obsessed with a specific composer? I don't know, you've been listening to Bach and your music sounds like Bach, and then that sort of limits you, doesn't it? Well, but I, I think that is the process of honing one's style. And yeah, I do, you know, I, I, I will see, uh, especially with students, because um, I'll occasionally get a private student 
um, you know, someone who's in college maybe and has been listening to a lot of uh, Steve Reich or a lot of uh, Nico Muley or someone like that, and their music will sound very much like that composer. Um, I think that is a kind of a necessary stage to go through. I mean, I, I certainly went through several phases uh, throughout my development uh, where you could say like, oh, <laughs> you know, Tim has been listening to a lot of Prokofiev this year. Um, or a lot of John Adams, or, or what have you. And that's probably true for a lot of different kinds of musicians. You could uh, say the same for rock musicians or jazz musicians. For sure, yeah. They'll start by emulating uh, the people they like, and then gradually get the confidence to incorporate their own ideas into their performance. Yeah, yeah. Or, or composing or writing. I was listening to, uh, just, just happened to put on some, uh, some early Radiohead the other day, uh, which I hadn't listened to in a long time. And... Uh, I was kind of shocked at just how much of a direct line there is from like the who or right. someone like that. Or, no question. Uh, right. You know, it's, I, I've never seen that as something to necessarily be ashamed of. Uh, I guess like so, some people will immediately dismiss music for being derivative. It doesn't bother me if, um, if there is also something else there, if there's something personal there, it doesn't bother me to be able to say like, oh, I can, I can tell what type of music this person really loves and really admires and what they've been listening to. Um, I th and I think it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit of a composting situation that happens. I mean, the, the thing, you put the thing on the pile and it's recognizable and it's right on top. And eventually it's sort of, degrades and it all becomes soil and you can't really separate the influences from each other. One of the things that uh, I worked in radio for a long time and one of the things that record labels were always looking for is something that sounds familiar but is slightly different so they can get a marketing handle on it. So I remember when I was working uh, in an alternative format in the 90s and everybody was looking for the next Nirvana. Of course, yeah. And it was really amazing how much stuff record companies were pushing on us trying to sell and get played on the radio that sounded like Nirvana and, and a lot of it not very good at all. Yeah. I think there's also, that, that reminds me, one of the ways that I think composers or any type of musician finds their own style is by setting out to imitate something and failing and sort of missing the mark. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've done this and you know been inspired by a specific thing or have the feel, you get the feeling of hearing something and, and it's so good and, and you sort of think, I wish I'd written that. And you try to sort of imitate it and, and you fail because you're coming to it from your background and with your own set of experiences and skills and, you know, maybe very different from the source material. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've set out to like write a David Lang piece and I am just such a different composer than David Lang. It like ends up being <laughs> completely missing the mark. Um, and yet I could point to you sections or ideas and, in my pieces that have been like, oh yeah, that was like my David Lang process idea and it just like went off the rails. Um, I think that's a completely valid way of, um, of, of sort of finding something of, of like, 
shooting a little to the left, and uh, maybe you, you discover something, something that's your own. It, it's pretty much impossible to create music that isn't influenced by other music. Mm -hmm. um, I was just thinking earlier, a few minutes ago, you said that you're open to listening to pretty much anything. And I was thinking, hey, I actually listened to all of Lou Reed's Metal Machine music once. <laughs> We've all done it. <laughs> it's one of the rare pieces of music that really doesn't sound like any other music, though, though Glenn Branca took a lot of that style and made a career out of that. But you can't avoid it. You're always influenced by something, whether it be medieval music or Bach or romantic music or Steve Reich. You can't avoid the influences because you're in that world where this music exists. And I think, uh, you know, that the period of time that metal machine music and so much other music came out of, that was sort of one of the rare periods in music history where because of a certain uh, combination of technological progress and sort of, uh, I guess you could call it philosophical opening up, there actually was a lot of new music to be made of, you know, music that really was doing something that no one had ever thought to do before. And, you know, 50, 60 years later, I think a lot of that music has been, that, that was sort of new and fresh and that was its message a lot of that has already been written and now we're in one of the more sort of refinement periods of music history i i don't i don't know exactly probably you know music historic actual musicologists would would scoff at at my reductiveness here but i i think it there is a little bit of a, a ping pong uh, between the sort of inventing periods and then the refining periods. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of like in the classic, in the sort of very early classical period of com composers like uh, J.C. Bach and, and Michael Haydn and, you know, like uh, Stamets and these, these sort of composers who were, were just sort of inventing the classical style um, but it was like very, very uh, larval at that point. Um, and that then the next wave of composers like Joseph Haydn and, and Mozart and Beethoven were actually kind of taking those new raw materials and refining them and sort of uh, focusing them. So I think we're, we're in one of those, those focusing periods right now. Well, if you look at popular music, you know, rock and roll came around in the 50s and 60s, and it sort of defined itself in the 70s, and it hasn't changed that much since then. There have been some minor alterations. Rap and hip-hop started in the late 70s, early 80s, and it's reached its maturity. Jazz today is still sort of half in the 1950s and half being influenced by Ornette Coleman and, and people like that. And this, this corresponds to the advent of the long playing record, doesn't it? And the, the advent of FM radio and all that, that, that gave us an opportunity to listen to more music. Before we started recording the show, you were saying that you listen to a lot of music on Apple Music. And perhaps the ability that musicians and composers have now to listen to this history of music with a few clicks will lead to some sort of new... I'm thinking of, you know, the way you mix a cake. You, you, you combine the ingredients, but you do it in a slightly different way. And they've got all these ingredients now that are there, and they can start making new cakes. Yes, and I, I think um, 
the idea of juxtaposition and uh, context and and palimpsest and a sort of postmodernism is something that is very it's it's very of the moment certainly among my colleagues my my composer colleagues that's some, it's something that a lot of us are interested in I sort of went through a, a period of being very interested in that and kind of using almost like sampling techniques, though of course all acoustic, to reconcile the d- different musical influences in my life. And I, th- you know, I think that was very, it was very fruitful for me and very important. And I think a, l- a lot of composers go through a kind of a phase of doing that, that it's, it's sort of a, a period now that we have to we have to work on integrating these things and that collage and sampling and, and juxtaposition are that we're using these compositional techniques as sort of a way of dealing with just the, the massive amount of um, musical stimulus that uh, are available to us now. Again, like I'm, I'm being a, an armchair musicologist here and, and uh, I'm, I'm a little uh, out of my element maybe, but it's, it's a theory that I've had for sure. I want to start talking about your music now. That, that I can actually speak to with a certain amount of authority. So I want, I want to talk about the Blind Bannister. I want to talk about what you're doing for the Boston Symphony. Obviously, you don't have a recording of the Boston Symphony piece, but do you have MIDI bits that you generate from your software that we could use? You know, I don't. Um, I, I very consciously sort of steer clear of MIDI. I don't like to use it, and I, I don't... Uh, basically, here's the thing. MIDI playback, it can sort of fool you into thinking that a good idea is not a good idea, and conversely, that a bad idea is a good idea, just because of the, the sort of... Um, the things that MIDI playback itself is good at reproducing and, and not. Well, it's digital. It is what it is, and there's there's no nuance. Exactly, yeah. It's fine if your end product is going to be the MIDI playback itself. You can program nuance. You can put Roboto in a certain section or whatever. But mm-hmm. when the final piece is to be performed by human beings, you can't program the eyebrow. You, you can't program the human interaction with it. Even samples, I mean, uh, I, I sort of... When I'm writing, I'll move between two stations. This uh, this upstairs, this big computer upstairs, which I'm at right now, with an 88 key MIDI keyboard, and then I'll move downstairs where I have my piano uh, and compose on my laptop there. And even just the difference between the sample that I get from my MIDI keyboard and the, playing the same thing on my Bosendorfer, it's like I'll play a chord that maybe I, I would have rejected as not being interesting enough on the sampler, and then that same chord will sound interesting and, and nuanced and, and beautiful on, on a real piano. Well, also, you have a Bosendorfer, so it, it's a unique sound. If you don't have a subwoofer up with your MIDI keyboard, then you're missing a lot of the bottom end of the Bosendorfer. Yeah, and and you know I have I have decent samples and 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 decent sound equipment up here, but still it's like it's no comparison. I mean, you're missing all of the subtle overtones and all of the shading yeah. and and things that you can get. So I I am constantly reminding myself that 
you know, anything that I get out of a computer is, is missing that it's entirely missing that, that sort of human quality. So that was a very long, long answer. <laughs> I don't have a MIDI file. <laughs> and with that, we have to conclude part one of our chat with Timo Andres. In our next episode, we'll have part two, and we'll discuss, among other things, more about Timo's music, the business of music, and his piece, Everything Happens So Much, which will debut with the Boston Symphony in mid-November. So be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss it. This is the part of the program where we tell you our next tracks. That's the music that we'll be listening to shortly. Kirk, what have you got lined up? So my next track is by a composer that was mentioned in this interview, Steve Reich. I've been a Steve Reich fan since I first discovered his six pianos in the 1970s. And if you heard the show we did with Will Hermes a couple of months ago, he was the one who turned me on to it. I had never heard music like this, this sort of repetitive minimalism, and I found it fascinating. The Six Pianos was part of a box set that was released by Deutsche Grammophon in the early 1970s. It had six pianos. It had a piece called Music for Mallet Instruments, Voices, and Organ. As you can see, Steve Reich's titles were never very inspired. And on two LPs, it had a piece called Drumming. This comes to one hour and 24 minutes, and it's basically a couple of guys drumming. And it's more than a couple of guys. I believe there's eight or 12. I recall seeing a Steve Reich festival at the Brooklyn Academy of Music in the early 1980s. And I was sitting up in the balcony and you were watching these musicians play as they were moving around from instrument to instrument. It was almost choreographed. It's this fascinating piece where you have these competing rhythms that go in and out of phase and all. And it's just basically an hour and a half of percussion. You might not like it, but if you're interested in this sort of minimalist, repetitive music, check it out. It's called Drumming by Steve Reich. There are several recordings. The one that I really like is this early 1970 recording on Deutsche Grammophon. But there are also there's also another one by an ensemble called So Percussion. Another one that Steve Reich did, I believe, on Nonesuch Records in 1987 with his ensemble as well. So that's my next track this week. What's yours, Doug? My next track was inspired by your having mentioned Timo's Homestretch album, which has a piece based on themes by Brian Eno from his album, Another Green World. And that's my next track. It's Eno's third solo album from 1975. And like most of his early solo stuff, it is accessible if you have a strictly pop or rock bent. That is, it's not ambient, and you can dance to it, I suppose. <laughs> uh, some of the contributors include Phil Collins and Robert Fripp, and who else would you know? Oh, John Cale and others. If you're an Eno fan, you've listened to this album probably as often as I have. I remember when it came out, it was very well received. In fact, I remember hearing some of it on WBRU, which is the Brown University station I listened to growing up. If you don't know any Eno, this one is listenable, and it's kind of cool. Brian Eno, Another Green World is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>